The only thing I'm asking people to do is to lean into eight unpleasant feelings. And in this case, there's sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. Just those eight. And why those eight? Because they're the most common, spontaneous, everyday reactions to things not turning out the way we want or the way we believe they, we need them to be. This is episode number 519 with Dr. Joan Rosenberg, How to Master Difficult Feelings and Cultivate Confidence. I'm really excited about this conversation that we're going to have based on her book, and we're going to get into it, but this book was really pretty groundbreaking for me, and I hope you'll find this conversation to be as, as, as wonderful as I anticipate it to be. Hi, everybody. I am Sandy Weiner, and welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late to go on your last first date. And to support you on your journey to lasting love, I wrote a book. It's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And it's filled with 30 chapters. Each chapter has a tip on how to build your core confidence. And this book is available on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. This week's tip from the book is step number 20, adapt a positive mindset. We often go into dating with hopelessness. I just saw something in my Facebook group, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, where a woman went on one date, the guy said, I don't feel like it's a match. It's not you. It's me, blah, blah, blah. Now she's feeling hopeless, even though she knows it's not it, it, it was one date. And so often we just go in thinking, this is it. This is uh, this is never going to be a match for me. So one of the things that's really important is to have a positive mindset. And it's not to believe that every date is going to be your future person, but it's more about really having a positive mindset in life and a growth mindset in life. And if you do that, then there is no wasted date. There is no wasted meeting of a person. It's all part of the plan, part of your growth. And uh, before I bring on my guest, I want to give a shout out to my Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. And we are about 3,600 women strong at this point. And I have seven amazing moderators who moderate the group so that it stays positive and focused and it's not a cesspool of complaints because that's what happens in most groups for single women <laughs> and we don't devolve into that. I have very strict guidelines that are all geared to help you set boundaries and communicate more effectively and do all the things that I teach in my coaching practice. So join us at your last first date. And now for my guest, Dr. Joan Rosenberg. She is a psychologist, a best-selling author, a corporate wellness consultant, and a media expert. She's known globally as an acclaimed speaker and trainer on communication, confidence, resilience, authenticity, and grief. She has had three, time, uh, three TEDx speeches, and she's a member of the Association of Transformational Leaders. And she's been recognized for her innovative emotional mastery and confidence building approach and for her thought leadership and global influence and personal development. I personally have found her approach to be really accessible and uh, I, I love it. So I can't wait to share it with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really fun to be here. 
Let's talk a little bit about building confidence. Uh, you, I know you had your own journey towards your own confidence. So can you share a little bit about your journey and how you started this? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I always like to tell people that, I, I mean, if I, if I give you the uh, most graphic description, I like to tell people that I was so shy that if you remember wallflowers, I was Velcroed to the wall. <laughs> so, so I would, I mean, I was shy. I was um, sensitive. I really, if I thought about it, if, retro, retrospectively thinking about it, I was, um, I, I would, I felt so different. I didn't feel like I belonged. And, and I would typically look out over at my peers and see them laughing together and belonging and just being able to go take risks and, you know, just feeling really good about themselves. And, and so as I grew up and, and much that way, and I was also bullied so that that added its own measure of, of discomfort and, and hurt that, that it was like, I wondered what I perceived they had and that was confidence. And so for me, that was the first question that I, I was kind of challenged by in life. And, and so that I sat with that question. I was like, so how, how do I develop this confidence? Because nobody was telling me how to do it. And, and even if I got engaged with some kind of therapeutic work, nobody was telling me that this is the path, this is how you do it. And then as I got into my professional life, a second, as a psychologist, my uh, second question emerged. And that was what made it so difficult for people to experience unpleasant feelings. And what I found is as much as our faulty thinking can get in the way, and it does, people who struggled with unpleasant feelings found that they, they didn't feel capable in life. And, and so I was like, okay, then how, you know, let me, let me try to understand these two. And as time went on, what I began to understand more is that the answer to that second question about unpleasant feelings really was the foundation. The answer to that was the foundation to confidence. So what I found is that being able to handle unpleasant feelings really is the first step or the foundation of confidence. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating that we're not taught how to deal with unpleasant feelings. We're told not to feel. Often, yep. Right? Don't feel yep. that. I, I remember mm -hmm. when I had my first coaching workshop right after I became a coach and my mother said, don't be nervous. Mm -hmm. And I had just become a coach, so I knew about feelings. <laughs> yep. And so I said, you know what? It's actually okay for me to be nervous. And I know you're trying to help me and support me. Can I tell you a better way to support me? And I learned to ask for what I needed, which was if you just told me you believed in me, that would be great. If you told <laughs> me you thought I might do a good job, that would be fantastic. Right. But I started to recognize where feelings got squelched and I had a hard time also with my feelings. And I remember one of my kids said to me that I was, they never really saw me cry. You, you mm. mentioned you talk about that in the book, yep. you know, people who don't cry for many, many years. And I had gone through a lot of trauma, but I had to keep it together. And I think that many of us just feel like we have to for survival we have to be strong and strong means don't show vulnerability. Don't show negative. Don't feel your feelings. Just right. keep going. Right. Right. So why, yeah. Why don't, why don't people express their feelings? 
Uh, well, express or experience? Those are two different oh, okay. things. Actually, they're linked. They're very much linked, though. So which which question would you like me to answer? Um, let's, well, experience has to happen before we express. So let's True. talk about that True. first. Oh, well, you know, a lot of times, especially with unpleasant feelings, there's a number of different things. Uh, people people think unpleasant feelings are unnecessary. And, and the reality is, is they're actually very necessary because unpleasant feelings are actually designed to protect us. So I, and I like to take it out of the notion that unpleasant feelings are bad or negative. Instead, they're simply kind of uncomfortable or unsettling, but they're not. They're, but the key thing to remember is that they're, they're actually designed to be protective for you. The, but so why they, they might be too intense. They might feel flooding. And so it'll, I can't get over it. It's never, a second is if they're not good, they're never going to stop. So if they're going to start, I'm going to, you know, I'll never stop crying, whatever it might be. So that, so they're too intense. Um, I, they'll never stop. Uh, I, so they'll get, I'll get flooded and I, and I can't do anything about it. Or um, I'll, they'll leave me feeling um, out of control or I'll actually go out of control. So if I get so angry, maybe I'll become so rageful that I go out of control. So those are, you know, those are four reasons that people immediately move back from unpleasant feelings. Uh, most of us handle pleasant feelings somewhat comfortably, so we don't even think about what we do with joy or awe or happiness or those kinds of things. Um, it's really the unpleasant ones. And for me, it's really much tied to the bodily sensation as to why people move away from that as well. And you talk about the 90 seconds and for anybody watching on YouTube, I'm just going to hold up the book, 90 seconds to a life you love, which is a, an amazing book. Thank you. And 90 seconds. That's all it takes to, right, to right. really ha go, go through and experience an emotion, um, an unpleasant feeling. And I, I had a podcast guest on many years ago on my other podcast, and she had been in a depression postpartum depression from for a long time sure and nobody could help her and she actually was the first person who talked about this concept of for her it was anthropomorphizing the emotion mm. uh the feeling like it, just saying sadness i'm talking to you what do, what are you trying to teach me what are you here for and so she confronted those emotions and and those uncomfortable feelings and finally was able to work through them in a very short time, as opposed to the year, year and a half that she had been suffering with depression mm -hmm. from her sadness. You say it's only 90 seconds. So like, why does it take so long for people to, why do they hold on so long? So there's, so let me, they, so those are, you have uh, two big questions kind of embedded there. Let me, let me try to walk through both of those. One has, actually has to do with the 90 second piece. The second has to do with the notion of feelings lingering. So let me let me see if I can can kind of tackle them in that order. The the first is that the ninety seconds idea. I want to make clear it was not my idea. I but what I've done is I I've synthesized the work or adapted the work of Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor, who wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. And in that book, she talked about her observation. She was a Harvard trained is a Harvard trained neuroscientist. And she made the observation that, that when a feeling gets triggered, uh, there's a rush of biochemicals into our bloodstream that activate bodily sensations and that those same biochemicals uh, flush out of the bloodstream in an upward limit of 90 seconds. And what I wanna do is take that idea of those biochemicals, the 90 seconds and the bodily sensations and kind of bring that into the discussion here. 
So what I what I found in, in my work is that there was sort of a formula to help people kind of stay present to the feeling. And because most people run, want to run away from them when they're, when they're uncomfortable or unsettling. So, and it's especially tied to unpleasant feelings. So I kind of came up with this formula and, and, and the formula is one choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. And, and the one choice is to stay present to what's going on and to be aware or aware, as aware of and in touch with as much of your moment to moment experience as possible. The, the choice, that choice is being made against avoidance. And, and we find all sorts of ways to distract. We can distract through shopping. We can distract through screens and social media. We can distract through food, through substance use, through having feelings about having feelings. I mean, I can go on and on. Anxiety is a way to distract. From my point of view, harsh self-criticism is a way to distract. So, I mean, there's, I think in the book, I probably named 35 different ways to do it. But all of us can be found in that list, including me and including me even now. So um, there's obviously I'm human. I, I do those things too. So the, but the key here is I'm inviting people to stay in, in that place of awareness instead and to, to try to be in touch with as much of your moment to moment ex experience as possible. The second part then is that it's the eight feelings. The only thing I'm asking people to do is to lean into eight unpleasant feelings. And in this case, there's sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. Just those eight. And why those eight? Because they're the most common, spontaneous, everyday reactions to things not turning out the way we want or the way we believe they, we need them to be. And then the, what I started with in terms of the 90 seconds has to do with this idea that the, and, and an understanding that most of us come to know what we're feeling emotionally through bodily sensation. So if, for instance, if you think about embarrassment, you would see the redness in my face. I would feel the heat in my face as my signal or my bodily sensation cue that the, I'm feeling embarrassed. So just understand that most of us have a bodily sensation signal that helps us know what we're feeling emotionally. And what I realized is that that's what people want to distract from. It's not that, it's not that we don't want to feel the whole range of what we feel, it's that we don't want to feel the bodily sensation that helps us know what, we're, what we feel. And if you have that understanding and you have the understanding that's only roughly one or more, I'm gonna emphasize the more here, one or more bodily sensation waves, then the way you lean into unpleasant feelings is to understand your focus is to ride one or more short-lived bodily sensation waves. And that's how you lean into unpleasant feelings. Yeah. So the 90 seconds, and you talk about there's a range there too. Like, Absolutely. Right? Yep. But it's like maximum-ish 90 seconds is Roughly all speaking, it. yeah, feelings, right. are, feelings are transient. And that's mm -hmm. what and people think they're long-lived. They're actually very short-lived. Yeah. And when we don't push them away and not pay attention to the bodily sensations, they can linger. Right. We can remember. And you talk about the, the memory of that. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I, yeah. I found that to be really interesting. I had a father who was... Um, bipolar and ruminated a lot and just played out everything over and over and it drove me nuts 
But I understand it's, it was part of his mental illness that he did that, but it was like things just never left him. And right. So, so the, then, the, so to your to your point, the kind of that to lean into then your second question, second part of the question is what kind of what causes them to linger. Well, I would add a couple of things more that that aren't in the book. One is trauma encodes differently in the brain. So the an experience of trauma, tragedy and trauma, um, can leave an experience that feels like feelings that are lingering. So that would be that would be one. A second is that when we try not to think about what's actually present in our lives, and you're saying things like, "Well, I don't care about it," or "I'm just not going to think about that," the reality is is you're going to cause yourself to think about it more as opposed to less. So if I told you not to think about an elephant that was green and pink polka dot, you'd have to think about that elephant in that look to not think about it. And that, it doesn't work, it can't work. So <clears throat> that's what psychology calls thought suppression. And so thought, thought suppression doesn't work, but it causes that experience of lingering. The second is if you kind of keep on thinking a given thought or you keep on uh, generating a given memory, then that memory or thought is going to bring up everything attached to it, including the feelings. And the more you think, rethink it or the repeat it, and uh, whether you repeat the thought or repeat the memory, the more now you're actually keeping those feelings going or that experience that the feelings are going because you keep on repeating those thoughts and memories. And then the third big way, or fourth big way now that I, I talk about feelings, feeling like they're lingering, has to do with actually with harsh self-criticism. So if you're a person that engages a lot of self, self, self negative self-talk or kind of trash talking yourself, then uh, I will tell you that I believe harsh self-criticism creates an experience of lingering unpleasant feelings. Definitely. <laughs> I'm thinking of a few of my clients who had a lot of trauma growing up and have the lingering self-criticism based on the mm -hmm. traumatic upbringing. Mm -hmm. And so one, one woman had been told she was selfish by her parents who were actually quite selfish. Mm. And I'm trying to help her understand and work through her emotions and understand that that was all the people who called her selfish were the most selfish people in her life. And we can say it, but unless you actually feel it and own it, it's not going to stay in your right. body. Right. So, yeah. And it, so there are a lot of people who, who are just petrified of going there. Right. So it's really unpleasant. It conjures up something awful. You feel like you're going to die. You know, they're probably very extreme reactions right. to right. emotions. Can you share an example of somebody that you've worked with? You've shared many stories in the book of somebody who had very poor coping mechanisms around or strategies around how to cope with feelings um, by numbing and doing, you know, something that wasn't, that wasn't healthy and how they work through this system. You know, actually the one that comes to mind is the one that I think opens chapter two. That's the first one that kind of popped in mind. <clears throat> She's somebody who, when I first met her, she'd been sexually assaulted and, and uh, probably uh, it could have been just a couple months out of a sexual assault. And, uh, but, but previously she'd, she'd grown up in a family where uh, 
the fam the there was alcoholism in the family there was uh hoarding in the family there was uh physical abuse in the family uh and obviously hostility uh and this was a woman who tended to not only overeat she engaged in harsh self-criticism she would engage in explosive rage episodes and she would also do things like um uh, tear her hair and bang her head against the wall. I mean, there were, so we, and I think there's more, uh, drug use too. So, uh, so that there was just a, I mean, an array of things that she talked about, the, even the, this is the first session we met. And, and what I remember doing that first session <clears throat> is looking at her and saying to her that I realized she was bringing in all these different kinds of problems. And I wanted to reassure her that we would make our way through it. And, and that what was happening was that I believed that she had one major problem and that all the other kinds of things she was doing was a reflection of that one major problem. And what was the one major problem? She couldn't handle her emotional experience. And as a consequence, she did everything else around to distract from it. So that the explosive rageful episodes, the drug use, the head banging, the eating problems on and on and on, uh, the pulling her hair, they were all manifestations of trying to get away from the emotional pain she felt. And the first thing that I started to do with her was to say, actually, and I, I, I don't remember if, if this part's in the book, but I remember talking to her about, I said, that, I said, you know what, the explosive, your explosive reaction, we gotta, we gotta toss that one out first. We gotta make that one go first. And I used to call them spiking episodes. And, and so the first thing we did was try to try to have her work with this, this notion that she had no control over her anger and no control of how she expressed her anger. So I, I happened to take a particular view about anger and, and think about expressing anger as different from doing anger. So her explosiveness and the escalation to me is doing anger. That's not expressing anger. And, and so we started there and I tried to give her ways in terms of exp I explain what I just explained to everybody about handling the, these waves of feeling. And the more I was able to get her to kind of breathe into and, and allow herself to experience the feeling before she made any effort to express it, uh, then lots of things began to change. And, and over time, then it was a situation of more and more if you will, with the I talk about in the book, this idea of window of tolerance. So more and more tolerance for those uncomfortable bodily sensations. And as a consequence, more and more tolerance for her unpleasant feelings. The more calm she became, the more level-headed she became, and the higher functioning she became. So that's how, that, we, that's how we made our way through it, kind of week after week after week, until we could start to get at some of the other effects of growing up in the family she, she grew up in and also dealing with the, the sexual assault trauma. So lots of, lots of things had to happen before we could get to some of the deepest parts. Yeah, it's a powerful story. So you mentioned doing anger versus expressing anger. Yes, yes. Can you tell, tell a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I, and again, I tell a story in the book about this, but the best way for me for you to understand it is that when I talk about expressing anger, it, it would be the equivalent of me looking at you and saying, you know what, that made me really angry. Or maybe I would have a little bit more uh, intensity to it. You know, that, that really made me angry. That would be expressing anger. Anything that escalates 
or or explodes to me that's doing anger and and the example that i give in the book and and again this was also on a first session but i had in this case i had a couple in my practice and and the one the woman was being more withdrawn and the guy was being more um, intrusive and he would get angry and threatening never did anything physically to his girlfriend but but he would behave in ways that were uh, she could perceive that that or can be concerned about that she could get hurt and he grew up in a very very physically abusive environment for his entire life and and so that was he had that present experience in his experience and so in my mind he's doing anger that explosiveness and the intensity was unnecessary and i looked at him and i and i said i said do you do this at work and he said no and i said really you don't you don't do this at work it's like i checked in with him a couple times i said how come well, I, you know, I just got promoted to a supervisor. I want to be a good role model. Um, I could get fired. He listed three or four different reasons for me right off the bat. And I repeated, so you don't do this at work. Correct. But you do it at home with someone you say you love. I said, the fact that you don't do it at work tells me you can control this. So you're making a decision about what's an acceptable standard at work as opposed to whatever the standard is at home. So it's a decision you're making. And I'm gonna challenge you to make the decision to behave the way at home that you behave at work, tonight, starting tonight. And uh, to my knowledge, he actually did kind of buy into that challenge. It did change the way they related um, they ultimately broke up months later, but that's for a whole separate reason. Um, but, but the reality is, is that I began to see anger in a very, very different way at that point. And that I really think that from in most cases that, that most of us make decisions about anger and when it goes beyond, uh, and, and, and starts to, like I said, escalate, and move into sarcasm and hostility and meanness and threats and then physicality. That's doing anger, not expressing anger. That's very clear. I think that a lot of people in, who act out in certain places and maybe not at home, I've always thought like my kids would come home and let everything out the whole day, the whole day at school that they were holding in all those feelings and, and then they come home and safe place. Right. I can, right. But safe, but it's not okay. And so it's, it's teaching how to express those feelings, not don't suppress them at home right. or don't suppress them at school or at work, but learn how to express anger in a way that's more respectful, that's less in your face, that's less passive aggressive, so that it, it's connecting because it's, it's a true emotion that needs right. to be expressed. Right. It's a, it's a statement of my experience. Yeah. And, and a lot of people are petrified of anger. And, and I know that um, women in particular many women were raised to never get angry to always just be right be mild yep. and kind and and then I, I had a whole experience that was very different with a client of mine who was a black woman and there's there's a whole Stereotype. thing around black women who are angry 
Angry black women. Yes. Yeah. I I never knew about that because I was encouraging her to, to speak up and she was like angry black woman. And I'm like, Oh my God. So there's a lot out there that's telling us just be quiet, put your head down. Don't say anything. And anger holds a lot of clues for our values. It holds clues for what's important to us. And I think that to me, is one of the most important reasons that we need to be able to express and feel all of these unpleasant feelings because they are part of the fabric of who we are. They make up who we are. Absolutely. Yeah. We, and if we try to cut off from the experience of anger or those other unpleasant feelings, we're literally cutting off from half of our life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I had a date with somebody or first phone call with someone who never went to a date because it was so unpleasant he only wanted to focus on positive things. Mm. <laughs> so it was the opposite. It was like, um, you know, not just not express anger. Cause I've definitely had conversations with men after my divorce who just want to talk about how horrible their wife was and took all their money. And, and it was just a lot of victim acting out kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to set boundaries back then, <laughs> just hang up the phone. But the other men who would be all, everything is good and we can't talk about anything else. And so both of us, both of those cut off half of who we are. Exactly. We lack authenticity at that point. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music Unlimited. You can listen to over 70 million songs and thousands of playlists and stations. Plus, you can now stream your favorite podcasts like Last First Date Radio. You can listen to any song, anytime, anywhere, on any of your devices, your smartphone, your tablet, your PC or Mac, Fire TV, and any Alexa-enabled devices like the Amazon Echo. Get Amazon Music Unlimited for free for 30 days. Just head on over to getamazonmusic.com forward slash last first date to learn more and claim this offer. A couple things that, that nuanced in your book that I enjoyed were uh, the concept of disappointed in and disappointed. I remember learning about the word disappointed and learning that it was a judgment. And the way you described it as disappointed in is judgment and disappointed is an emotion. It's a feeling, right? It's a right. Feeling. Well, that's a, I think I'm not sure if that it might come into play when I'm talking about hard self-criticism. Um, that and and I don't think people realize what harsh harsh self criticism necess, necessarily sounds like, and uh, I mean in many, many cases they do, but there's nuances to it. And the second part of it is I don't think that they understand the damage it does. And and what I would find is that people would say, well, I'm disappointed in myself, and and I you know something didn't work out or you know they had tried hard at something it didn't happen or you know or persisted uh, but I'm disappointed in myself and I looked at them and I said no I said I said I think you're disappointed and disappointed in myself becomes a judgment about myself mm-hmm. so it so it's like well how about if we just leave you disappointed that something didn't work out. And notice the difference that, that the impact that that has on your sense of self. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I kind of, I had never thought about that. And it's like, but we do a lot of those kinds of things to, and it actually causes us, I think, to hurt worse. 
mm -hmm. uh, and to, to, to feel less, uh, to be uh, more harshly judgmental about ourselves and to devalue ourselves in ways that is totally unnecessary. And I actually think quite damaging um, than to just live with the feeling, oh, I'm just disappointed. When you take control of it or the impression that you're taking control of it by going, I'm disappointed in myself. Mm -hmm. Now I'm now to me, that's a thought hijack of the unpleasant feeling. So mm -hmm. harsh self-criticism in general to me is a thought hijack of unpleasant feelings. It's an interesting way to put it. I think also when you say I'm disappointed in somebody else, it's like your child or the person, your significant other, and somebody says, I'm disappointed in you. Uh, that also feels really judgmental. Exactly. Right? And I would, and I would say the same thing. Notice the difference in either saying I'm disappointed by what you did. Right. Or by what you didn't do. Mm-hmm as opposed to I'm disappointed in you or I'm disappointed by you, which send, which both of those sound like now I'm judging the essence of your person as opposed, or judging the essence of my own person as opposed to the behavior. So we, we, we obviously we want to separate, the, separate out the behavior from the person. And then the second part, what would it sound like if you just said, you know what, I'm disappointed that such and such either didn't happen or I'm disappointed that it did happen as opposed to even disappointed in or disappointed by. Yeah, yeah, it's a good distinction. It's like when I learned that saying, I feel like takes mm. you away from the feeling. Uh -huh. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I feel like you're an idiot. Um, that's not a feeling. <laughs> no, no, which means I think you're an idiot. Exactly, a it's a thought. <laughs> right, it's a thought. Right. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit more about confidence because it's, defined differently by different people. And I'd love for you to go into your definition of confidence. Well, that takes us back to kind of the beginning of, of our conversation today. And that is that to me, confidence is the deep sense that you can handle the emotional outcome. So think those eight unpleasant feelings of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. So again, the, the really the thing I wanna underline here is that the foundation of concept, confidence is that deep sense that you can handle the emotion, the, uh, in this case, undesired emotional outcome of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. Right, which opens up so many doors to pursue scary things and to do the things that you maybe wanted to do, but you were afraid to try and the conversations you're afraid to have. Right. And yeah, I mean, so much of my journey post-divorce in becoming a coach and, mm -hmm. and really getting in front of cameras and in front of microphones and sure. writing and putting myself out there. Each, each time you get up to speak, when I did my TEDx talk, it was the scariest thing in the world. And I thought everybody is here to judge me <laughs> and uh -huh. I am going to fail. Uh -huh. And I had terrible anxiety for a while. And it was one of the first times I ever really spoke in public it was kind of a backwards way to start speaking. And, um, but I got this great opportunity. So I had to learn the hard way to get support, to practice a lot, to do the yep. things I needed to do to work through my fears yep. and then have the courage to get up and do it. And I felt very confident when I finally did do it, but it was the most scary thing for me at that time. 
So um, public speaking is, is a big area where people just totally judge themselves, get in their heads. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, with the public speaking part or speaking yeah. in general? Well, to, well, me, they're, yeah. to me, they're, frankly, they're all the same. Okay. <laughs> Ultimately. So, so my point of view about taking it, because you were talking about taking risks right before that, my point of view around taking risks or taking any kind of action step, uh, which also includes speaking as part of that, or we can separate them out and say speaking is, is just a parallel kind of action, that, that they both come down to people not fearing the activity itself, but what they're really concerned about is the undesired emotional outcome of doing the activity. So it, it, if we use your TEDx example, you know, speaking on the TED stage and everything it took to practice and practice and practice and, and get out there, that you were, what you were trying to face down in terms of speaking is the experience of vulnerability. So in order to speak, we have to tolerate first the experience of vulnerability. And secondarily, we have to tolerate the range of, on those un other seven unpleasant feelings I talked about as well, because a vulnerability is one of the eight that I talked about. And, and in, so in order to get up and do your TEDx, then you had to be willing to be disappointed. You had to be willing to face disappointment or embarrassment or frustration or anger or any of those kinds of things, sadness, that it didn't work out the ways you wanted it to work out once you got off stage or once you saw how it was being received, all those different kinds of things. And, and so the, the way we are able to take those risks, in it, whether it's engaging in a very public kind of way as you did on the TEDx stage, or whether it's having a one-on-one -on -one conversation or one-to-many conversation, is that we have to be willing to tolerate not only the vulnerability to be actually engage in the act of speaking, but then be willing to experience the other seven unpleasant feelings that might come because we opened ourselves up. So, so that's, for me, it's the reason people hold back from speaking is because they don't want to deal with unpleasant feelings. And, and if, I can, if I can carve it out, um, the way I love to talk about this is that difficulty speaking up is not a speaking problem. Difficulty speaking up is a difficulty with unpleasant feeling that's mm -hmm. what it all boils down to right it does over and over <laughs> so you can handle those eight feelings you can start to speak up in ways you never considered before yeah it's really true and you know like i've entered many contests speech contests i just submitted to the moth radio hour oh how wonderful I, yeah i'm, I'm great I, I i didn't win a contest and i could have looked at that as well um I'll quit now because I didn't get what I wanted and I'm really frustrated and obviously I'm a terrible speaker. And I just said, well, what can I do? You know, let me feel what I feel. I was, I was disappointed. Right. And I was frustrated. I was frustrated right. with the judging, but I said, okay, I can also repurpose and I can find another platform and I can speak because speaking is important to me. So I didn't want one experience to silence me. And I think that we often will do that. You know, I, I when I was writing for the Huffington Post and the comments were just disgusting and I was reading them like an idiot. And so I was like, okay, I can choose not to read these. 
I can read them and maybe find some truth in them. I can experience whatever I'm experiencing, right? And there's just, you know, the, the trolls on online can be very damaging if you let them. Right. How do you deal with, you know, negative feedback on your book, for example? Have you had, or, or you're speaking? Uh, in, uh, in general, what I will do with that is, is understand that these, um, the, the criticisms tend to come from people who are not engaged in that same level of risk-taking as I just took to put the work out there. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is I have a colleague that likes to say, if you're starting to get trolled and you're starting to get negative comments, that means you've made it. Yeah. And, and that you should look at it as this is, this is one of the prices. And it, it's like, there's more than often than not, there's little value in the comments that people are offering. And, and so I, you know, I might scan something, but I don't give much, uh, I really don't give much, uh, much value to them because yeah. I, because they're not, I, I know what it took for me to do the work. I know how I value the work. And, and if, if they can just dismiss it offhand without being engaged in it, letting me know where they're coming from or in Africa, actually coming to it with an intent to be constructive as opposed to destructive, uh, then it's like, then the intent is not in the right place. So if the intent is a malicious intent or a destructive intent, it doesn't have value. If you want to come, if you want to give me some constructive uh, feedback and, and I can tell that it's coming from a well-intended place, that's a whole different story. Yeah, that's, that's a good distinction. I, I think that people are really fearful of feedback in general. And often it's because they've only gotten feedback from the source of, sure. that's been negative and critical. Sure. And um, feedback can be really helpful. If people have an environment where feedback is freely given in a kind and supportive way, right. that's right. how we grow. Right. 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 And so. which, is, which is one of the things that I talk about. I mean, even when we develop the, and I think of communication as skill, even if we, when we develop our skill of speaking, that it's and and also providing feedback to others. It's never about coming from an ill-intended place. My my caveat around speaking up is that uh, it need, it's the goal is to be kind and well-intended, not to be malicious or hurtful. So that's what I'm really asking people to consider as you start to engage more honestly with other people. Let it let it be from a kind and well-intended place, not a hurtful place. Absolutely agree yeah. with the you. Other the other thing I wanted to say too, because you're you're such a good representation of it, is is that you you know when you got when you and I and I never like to use the word rejected, but but I'll use it and then change it. When you got rejected from the speaking opportunity from the speaking contest, right? Or or when you got disappointed by the results you got from this from applying to that speaking contest, the key here is that you didn't stop. You didn't take the one incident and go, oh, I guess I'm not a speaker. Oh, guess I'm never, I should never apply to contests again. Instead, what you did is you went, okay, I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna persist. And the, one of the most important things that you show me in that, or I, hopefully you're, you're showing your other listeners is that uh, it's the, that you valued something greater than the emotion that you felt when you were disappointed by, you know, like the disappointment, you something was more important to you, your vision or what you valued, what you were, what you wanted to achieve was greater than your reaction. 
And, and so when you can hold that vision and hold that value and hold that goal or dream or desire and, and you let that lead and you understand that disappointment is just part of the pathway to success. We all get disappointed. I like to say we get disappointed on our way to success. Uh, that it's just, it's just, it just build it in. And that's, it, it's now both the attempt the, and then the, the experience and then the persistence through the experience and the attempt again that is the thing that actually builds that unwavering confidence. It's understanding that that is the process. It's not that you have confidence and then take the action. It's not that you speak and then you take the act. I mean, you, it's not that you have confidence and then you speak. It's not that you have confidence and then you take the action. It's that you take the action or you speak and then you develop the confidence. It works in the, or, uh, the opposite order we typically think it does. Yeah, exactly. And, and I knew my why, which is why I agreed to the TEDx. That's all I knew. <laughs> I knew I right. had a mission. I knew I had passion, right. but I didn't know how to speak. And so, and That's it was my right. biggest fear. And, you know, when you described your, your childhood, I had a, a similar experience where I did not speak in class. I shut down probably in like first and second grade. I never raised my hand mm. and we had moved a lot. So that's another trauma that I sure. never realized sure. was trauma. And um, I had moved from Atlanta to New Jersey. And so I had this Southern accent. And when I would read aloud, people would make fun of me. So I stopped reading aloud. And I, I realized much later, I was called shy my whole life. You're shy, you're shy, you're so shy. And I realized it wasn't shy. I was just afraid of being judged. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be made fun of in the classroom and be embarrassed. And so the only way to prevent that is to say nothing. And my parents had brought me to a therapist. We took me to a psychiatrist for testing. And, you know, your daughter's very bright, but she's just shy. Uh -huh. So that was the message. And it was a label I carried for my whole life that I'm just a shy one. And I, you know, like you, I would kind of, and a, a little different, but I, I had my peers, the ones I hung out with were the ones with the big mouth. Mm. And with, I would sometimes kind of quietly tell a joke and then they would say it out loud and get credit for it. And then over time, I, I didn't like that very much. <laughs> it's like, I had a voice too. Right. I, just, I just couldn't find it right. for a long time. And I think once, once I found it, I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to lose this and I'm going to actually empower other people to find theirs too. Oh, that's great. Great. Yeah. So, um, this has just been so great. I mean, I could talk to you forever, but I, we do have to end. Okay. And so my, my final question, and I ask this of everyone, is what are your final words of advice for anyone who wants to go on their last first date? I, for me, it will probably come down to vulnerability in this case. Uh, I, I actually, yeah, because vulnerability to me means a willingness to tolerate the other seven feelings. So vulnerability, the way I define vulnerability is it's the sense that you could be hurt. Go into that potential last first date with the openness and, and let, let yourself be vulnerable and be your true self and be willing to experience the other seven feelings if it doesn't work out. 
And and I would I would say be willing to have your last first date be as many last first dates as you need to have them be, but but be vulnerable when you go and do it because be, being your true self is really the kind of thing that's actually going to be the most inviting to the person that's there. So be your be your most honest, most true, most vulnerable self. I love it. I couldn't agree more. I think that people don't know what true self means. I think people really struggle with true self because we spend so many, so many decades putting masks on and trying to be another self, right. other people's selves and to get naked in that way right. is scary, but it's also what connects us because a lot of what's out there in terms of dating advice is to actually pull a bait and switch, like show up as this really together person who never has any problems and and then all of a sudden when you're in a relationship let it all out i would agree with you do, do you mind if i add another piece to this with oh, that sure that i because i i, I recently um I recently got into a relationship and and the decision that i made at the front end of that was to be as honest and direct as possible and a part of this is probably borrowing from the wisdom of age, mm -hmm. uh, but but it was like I don't know what time what the time will be, and I'm always conscious maintain a consciousness about time, and and that I want to be I want to make better use of the time that I have, not knowing what remains, and and so for me it was I'm just gonna I'm gonna kind of lay it out there and be very specific about how I see myself and what it is that I want. I will tell you that when I was able to be honest in that way and vulnerable in that way, my vulnerability didn't even feel like vulnerability. It felt like strength. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that when we can be vulnerable, meaning being honest about our experience, it's actually your greatest strength. It's not weakness at all. No. So that that's, that's, part of the reason I'm saying, let vulnerability lead, let your honesty of you lead. And that you'll actually be bringing strength into the equation as opposed to the opposite. Beautifully said. I, I, that's been my goal throughout all the relationships I've had after my divorce, where I lost myself quite a bit in that relationship. And I said, okay, no more. Mm. And it's not always easy. You know, it's, it's, People will sometimes ask me out at the end of a date. And now I'll just say, let's, let's talk. Cause I don't want to say a yes when I might mean a no, I have to percolate and figure out what I really want to say and what my truth is. So, you know, just asking for what you want, telling somebody that that didn't feel good, you right. know, all those things, relationships really bring out all the vulnerability in us right. and help us see ourselves and all the stuff that came before. And they're our best teachers, I feel, if we really are showing up to them. Yes, absolutely true. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much. I love this conversation. If you can share with our audience the best way to find you, that'd be great. At drjohnrosenberg.com or my name itself. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. And if you love our show, please rate and review us. Give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, here's to your last first date. If you are ready to get unstuck, gain new tools, become more empowered, and finally find your last first date, I'd love to talk to you. 
fill out an application to be considered for a complimentary half-hour love breakthrough session at lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. That's lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. I look forward to talking to you soon.